Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Then he came in and we did our mahimis and and then first question out of the box was, so how are you going to keep all those kids in there from joining gangs? That's the cool thing about being a Māori artist. To show me that that was possible. Peter Barrett Tene. In this episode of Paperback Gorillas, I sit down with Libby Hakaraya and Tainui Stevens, who are the power couple who uh, brought the Māori Land Film Festival to life. Uh, Māori Land Film Festival is the largest indigenous film festival in the Southern Hemisphere uh, and is situated in the centre of the universe, uh, aka Ōtaki. Uh, outside the festival, though, they're both extremely prolific storytellers with huge careers on and off the screen uh, that span across some of our most important shows in Aotearoa, especially for Māori, as well as talking through their career journeys from a time when hearing Māori on primetime TV was just a dream. Uh, We talk about racism from ex-prime ministers, fighting against those who try to put our people into boxes and categories, uh, what it means to do the work that you love, uh, the importance of Indigenous storytelling, of course, and being in control of the narrative and being in control of the medium, uh, and a whole lot more. I really enjoyed this corridor. It was a whole lot of fun, and I hope it's useful to you. Kia ora. Kia ora koutou, no mai haere mai ki te Paperback Gorillas, the podcast for mana-enhancing kōrero that we think is worth our time sharing and your time hearing. Uh, ko Pera Barrett Toku Ingoa, uh, and I'm here today at the whare of, uh, of Tu Taonga in Ōtaki, uh, and I will let them introduce themselves briefly and then we'll get into our kōrero. Uh, mihi ka tika ki a koe um, pera, uh, tō Barrett, uh, Mauteri o Kāpiti, uh, e mihi ana, uh, no Otaki Te Awa, no um, Taruru o Ngā Paimanga, uh, ko tainui te, uh, te pau o Tainui Te Marae, uh, ko Ngāti Kapu Manawa Fiti uh, Te Wharinui, um, ko Libby Hakaraya tōku ingoa. Ko Te Whānau Hakaraya, uh, i noho ane uh, au ki ōtaki, uh, nau mai, nau mai ki Te Whare. Kia um, Yes, I'm Libby. Um, I wasn't born in ōtaki, but this has um, certainly been a, a place that um, has held my heart. I've often been asked as I was growing up, um, which part of you was Māori? It's, um, my whakapapa is Māori and my mother is um is a Pākehā New Zealander um, with very strong and very proud Irish uh, roots. But, you know, in replying to that question, which part of you is Māori, um, over the years I've thought about that after being called half-caste, quarter-caste, you know, all of those things growing up. So I like to say that the part of me that is Māori is my my nāko and my wairua, and that comes from this place. Um, Ōtaki, to me, has always been a place of um, extraordinary love, you know, love from within our whānau and love extended um, to people that come into Ōtaki. So I'm very proud to call this my home, my home base for the last uh, almost 25 years now. Um, so mihinu ki a koe whanaunga. Mm, kia ora. Uh, tēnā koe ko, hoina koe te mihatura ki a koe. Nā unoho ki mihi mai ki a māo ko tapu makau. O te rai ia ki ngā taringa whakarongo tēnā koe. 
Paino, e mena te kōrua ngā mātua, ko hangatautia te pai maunga, ko karirikura te moana, ko ahipara ka mehe mehe te marae. Ka mutu heuri tēnei no te rarua iwi. Te rarua te tahi iwi nui, kai te hiko teika, paino ko tōku kāinga, tuturu, nā kai wai nui kei roto tonu ahipara. Nā rere ko te rarua teiwi, ko ngāti moetonga, rāo ko te roke kāinga hapū. Tēnā koutou. Te take e kōru atuai o Gākwe. I was privileged to marry this wonderful woman. <laughs> I searched for the right verb. <laughs> and, you know, it's... Um, I've married into the Hakarai family and into the Ōtaki Hapori. And although I'm from the far north, uh, you know, we have a... My roots come from a, a beautiful beach and it's a thrill of my life to be living alongside a beautiful beach as well. Um, Libby has made reference to part of her Māori story and where we've intersected in terms of our life together here in Ōtaki. It takes me back to my early times here in Ōtaki when I'd visit passing through. Or back in 1985 I made a koha program which looked at the wānanga, the wānanga rākawa which was kind of in its early days. And I remember a kōrero from that time, from those interviews, uh, talking about there are um, less than 100 speakers of Te Reo up and down the Kapiti coast. Most of those speakers are over the age of 70. And to come back, to be with my honey in her town, and to hear the language and feel the throbbing ngāko of uh, the people of here mm. is a beautiful thing. And what I've discovered about the personality of Ōtaki is that the language and the fight to restore the language has given shape to the way the people are. And um, it's very evident here in Ōtaki, in its own way. Other areas in our motu have their own personality and their own story. Mm. And um, you know, one of the things about Ōtaki is that it um, has used our intellectual capacity as a people via the wā mm. to, you know, all that whakatupuranga rua mano, and that kind of uh, thrust in the tertiary education alone has been inspirational for other mm. educational aspirations, tribal particularly, around the Motsu. So it's, um, it's very special to feel uh, or to be part of a life in a place where the, the Māori world is organic. Uh, it's just a part of the way you live your life here. Um, and I've lived in the cities where you have to struggle to find those moments to be Māori. Uh, I moved to small town New Zealand uh, in '98. And leaving Auckland to move to small town New Zealand was still one of the happiest days of my life. It was, it was good for me because I can work from home. Mm. It's always been a blessing. Um, but Libby and I have done a bunch of work in small towns around the country. And we know the feeling of a small town. And um, despite the naysayers, the power that exists in small towns, if only for the fact that the anonymity of cities means that the character and the personality of our nation is best found in small towns. Mm. Kia ora. Choice. Um, I'll, I'll just jump in there as well and um, just acknowledge the fact that we are uh, sitting outside in uh, the, the, the beautiful Otaki Beach. Um, and so there might be planes or waves or uh, <laughs> planes, waves, and ground dogs. Dogs. Right <laughs> <laughs> here. And. Uh, um, I won't apologise for that because I think this is a, a beautiful place to have the kōrero and that's mm-hmm. that's cool. Um, 
and also, yeah, I just wanted to take a minute to um, to say kia ora to you both before we kick in. Um, kind of the the co-papa of this uh, podcast is about sharing money, enhancing kōrero, and um, not only the kind of mechanical tools and things that that uh, we think are worth sharing with, especially with Māori, but also just reminding our people that there are uh, options and ways and uh, um, things that you can be uh, outside of what necessarily, or what, what might necessarily be painted um, by uh, mainstream narratives or by the statistics that we all see, or just by you know some of our some of our own people doing dumb things. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, kind of the pur- part of the purpose of this this podcast is really just that being a, an offsetting voice and an offsetting um, or a platform to to share some offsetting um, voices to that narrative and to mm-hmm. those those statistics. So, um, Kelda for being uh, being those role models and being uh, those mm-hmm. uh, not only through yourself and through your own mahi, but through the work that you do to share other um, other Maori doing doing good things and, and and telling their stories in different many different forms. Kelda um, for that. I'd like to start off with just a, a pretty uh, open, big question, uh, and that is uh, to you both. Do, do you love the mahi that you're doing? Mm-hmm. You go first, darling. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have always been aware that um, the number of hours you spend in a day doing your mahi is a lot of time. Mm. I think everyone has the right to ensure that they enjoy or really appreciate what they're doing in those many hours. And since I started working in this industry, in the storytelling industry, A, I was always aware of the, um, the honour of the opportunity, mm. B, of the chance to make a contribution, and C, to be kind of creative. Oh. And um, it's been like that all the time. And... I give talks sometimes to kids and they may ask me what's the most successful film program I've made and I've said the most successful thing I've done young people has enjoyed every day of going to work you have shit days Mm -hmm. but if you love what you do it's facile to say that you're not working Mm. because you sweat you know it's it's hard work but there's the I've seen the internet meme it says if you love your job you'll never spend a day of your life working yeah, mm. that's true. It is hard work. I mean, if you want to be good at what you love, that in itself is hard work. Right. Um, but it's satisfying work. Mm. And I've had the privilege of being able to see the results of what I've done become manifest in our society. Mm. And I say that with regard to the growth of Māori television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to see over the years, as myself and our colleagues, we did our thing... Mm and you grew the skills base back then and as political chances transpired and all that kind of stuff uh, you've got a a pretty healthy screen industry Mm. and I think back often early days you know when we started in this industry you dream of having Maori language in prime time and it's not so much prime time as TV because that's becoming irrelevant but it's accessible Mm. anytime and so yeah I'm very grateful my life and I have to say Peter it's because I made a decision in the very beginning because I had a hunger for the language that I wanted to work with the language Mm. it happened to be in the race relations office first then it happened to be in Māori TV and film after that but that was my thing Mm. my guide to be in a place where I could work with the language not necessarily teaching or 
just devoted language, but where the language was just a normal part of what you do, mm. really. And um, I pat myself on the back that I took my advice and dropped out of varsity to do that. <laughs> Kilda. Kilda. Um, I have a sort of a... Tainui calls it my glass half-full attitude to everything, but it's not. It's... Um, it's when I first started in in, uh, in the work that I'm in now, I'd, I'd pretty much dropped out of school, or as my daughter keeps reminding me, um, Mum, you failed at school, but I didn't. I actually got asked rather strongly to to exit, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wasn't too upset about that. But and, you know, the job market at that time was really pretty bleak for um, a young woman leaving school a young girl leaving school and this was in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton and so having had you know some education and being streamed at school it was you know I, I was a step above according to the teachers at the time you know the clerical pool mm-hmm. which meant I had no clerical skills <laughs> um, or any sort of those sorts of skills but I, I could speak terrible French mm-hmm. and probably somewhat better Latin mm-hmm. so there was a lot of opportunity for me <laughs> good. Yeah. good key and, skills you know and so at the time it wasn't hard to get a job in a government department and that was a job for life mm. so you know it was a really rude awakening um, to start at the Inland Revenue Department and I spent luckily I started I think four months out from Christmas and I left the day of the Christmas holidays started when the whole office closed down mm-hmm. And I spent that probably that three months, a good part of that three months, um, pushing paper, literally pushing paper around because I really wasn't that interested. So mm. nobody actually got any sort of tax <laughs> done that year. It was all very manual, really manual, um, and organising the Christmas party. Yeah, important mahi. Important mahi, and you know what? I just thought, never, not me. Mm. So what was me? That was the confounding question. What was I going to do? Mm. With you know, And speech and drama had been a big part of my mm. life. Um, I'd really enjoyed that. And uh, so I went to a vocational guidance. I mean, this is, I don't, don't know if it's actually changed that much, but I went to this vocational guidance person who I have to say probably had next to nil idea of what a young person could mm. be doing in a world that was, you know, adapting. Not very fast, mm. not like it is today, but it was certainly changing. And uh, she asked me what I was most interested in. Of course, I said what most young people say when they're stuck in a, a place, rural, you know, dead zone like Hamilton at the time was um, travel and meeting people, you know. So my <coughs> options were travel, be a travel agent, mm-hmm. which was a relatively new thing, mm-hmm. uh, or a journalist. Mm-hmm. And I had one mentor in our family who was a journalist and still is a journalist today, and it was Bernard Lagan, and he was in the hotbed of journalism in the parliamentary... Mm-hmm. Um, he was probably the bane in the life of two or three prime ministers, actually, but he was there in the, in the Parliamentary Bureau for the Dominion Post at the time, and I, I remember getting in touch with him and asked him to write me a letter to get into Christchurch Journalism School. And as I remember, he didn't, but he did invite me to come down and look at the press gallery. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, what a place, because everyone seemed to be yelling at each other, mm-hmm. and it was really fr- frenetic. And, you know, and from there, I didn't get into Christchurch Journalism School, but I did get into radio. And I got into radio based on um, being able to read a news bulletin, like on the spot. Yep. And that seemed to be my, or oh, that's how I learnt journalism. So I learnt on the job. Everything I've done in my life has been um, the art of doing, and I think that's really suited me. Um, 
so you know it was a pretty fast and furious and right place wrong time wrong place right time um and it took me all it took me you know all over the world to sydney (laughs) 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 you know i went to sydney and i worked for the abc and i really credit the um the abc and the journalists there many of whom um were very much you know at the front of the vietnam war reporting Mm -hmm. they had a really great um journalistic ethic moral ethic and i really loved working with them so, you know, as a 20-year-old in the Sydney ABC newsroom, it was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Covered a lot of staff and then decided that I was going to be a war correspondent. That's really, really what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, to be a war correspondent for the ABC, I would have to have given up my New Zealand citizenship. And I only found that out sort of three years into it, you know, climbing the ladder and getting there quite quickly, that um, I would need to revoke my New Zealand citizenship. And that, to me, was, you know, and it started this questioning around if I couldn't do that, if I really couldn't do that, then what, who and what was I intending to do with my life? Who mm-hmm. am I? Mm-hmm. And what was I intending to do with um, something that if, you know, I couldn't deny you know, at the end of the day, is it just a piece of paper? Because really it doesn't stop you from being, you know, it doesn't cut your whakapapa off, mm-hmm. it just is a piece of paper so why couldn't I do it? Couldn't do it. Um, long story short, I spent a long time in radio. That's when I first met my darling Tainui when I was um, in radio, doing a show for Radio New Zealand. Um, so, you know, I loved, and I didn't, I loved those, that mahi, and, but I saw it just as a pathway to be able to go places and to enter places that, you know, I guess ordinary people couldn't mm. because we always had the back door. We always were able to talk our way into anything. You know, I've talked my way onto yachts with opera singers in the middle you know, middle of the Olympics have, I've talked my way you know, with this press badge into all sorts of situations and really you know, it has been privileged and I think being privileged it was only when I started thinking about coming home that I realised that you know, with the privilege comes the, you know, some responsibility mm. and um, being hauled into the Māori world of radio um, happened when I was quite young as well before I ran away to Australia and that was a that was a not a pleasant experience I would say but again met some beautiful very you know people that I, I, I count as my mentors to this day Henari Tua Hardy Williams and 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 you too darling Tainui that um that gave me something to when I was ready to come back you know gave me some something to aspire to to look up to um, and actually nurtured me back into Māori broadcasting. And as Tony mentioned, it was quite it was in its infant, in infancy at that time, really. I mean, I started radio at 20 for Māori uh, before I went to Sydney um, with what was then the pilot for Aotearoa. Um, it was called Aotearoa Radio. It was a pilot for the iwi radio stations around the country, and I ran the newsroom. Um, Tony, you know, we both remember sitting on Nafakari. Um, which is the the guild, if you like, of Māori and uh, Māori and television and film and radio, um, where we actually talked about, you know, imagine if we had our own, you know, television channel. And mm-hmm. It was enshrined in the in the Broadcasting Act, so we by damn we're going to get it. You mm-hmm. know? And then of course, you know, fast forward in Māori television, Fakata Māori is a thing. It's you know 12 years old now, and um, we've been there as Tony said, and 
you know, and it's sort of almost like coming full circle. So in answer to your question, Peter, there are days when I love what I do, mm. and there are days when I just think, this doesn't get any easier. Like, it doesn't. It, it, it consumes you seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, it, it People think it's, I don't know what they think, is it relatively easy? But you have to make choices all along the way. And coming home to, you know, a small town, that's a choice. Mm. And then doing what you do, you know, thank God for the internet when that came around because, you know, now we can be anywhere. Mm. You know, people can work from anywhere. But at the same time, it, it means that, you know, the, the discipline to shut down at the end of, you know, a 14, 15 hour day. Mm. I mean, we just, we're passionate and we still are passionate and it burns us out on occasion. But recently, you know, I actually thought, right, that's it. You know, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's There's a whole life to live doing something else. Mm. What could that be? So I've sort of played around with either being a yoga teaching florist. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> well, you know, anything. like, And yet it's not something you can... I mean, I haven't been able to sort of put away the story mm. voice. Mm-hmm. So... Somebody will talk to me and I'll just be thinking story, picture, mm. film, mm-hmm. documentary. I don't always act on those things, mm. but there's this inbuilt kind of story voice that, mm. you know, so I guess I've, I've come to peace with, you know, the idea that it's not something I can hang up and retire from. Mm. Um, but at the same time, hand in hand with that is seeing, you know, these young ones, all these young ones coming up and working with them and you know, I, I wouldn't have seen that five years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't think I thought I was ready to be anybody's mentor of any type. But gosh, you know, they just they bring so much passion and energy. It just like it, it kind of after years of smashing it, they are topping. You know, they're making it worthwhile, and mm. it's, that's neat. So no, yeah, do I love what I do? I love what I do now that we're working with the young people in the way that we are. I love what we do because I realise actually. You know, it's it's a vocation. Mm. Killed it. What would you say to the the career counsellor <laughs> uh, if you were in that room now and seventeen um, year old Libby walks in and says, "What should I do?" Uh, right now. I would probably say to them, that's a good question, I would probably say to them, come down to the hub, <laughs> come down to Marineland Hub, because we've, you know, we've mm. got all these um, ideas and they're all very fluid and it's all very, you know, we're not putting you in a box and so, you know, there's all sorts of things you might want to do. Mm. Um, so come down and have a look mm. because, you know, there's definitely some potential, You're, there is potential in, in all of our rangatahi and so come down may not be for you mm. it's your choice but at the end of the day you know there's a lot yep. happening mm. and is that there's a there's I don't know I found with with my music mahi that I haven't touched for a little bit I mean I do a little bit now and then but like when I started doing music the, the motivation was very self inward looking right and it was mm. about um, and you know, title we were talking before about like the therapeutic uh, motivation for for mm. lots of creative mahi right like lots of it is is that articulating that thing that's inside you whether it's pain or joy or whatever mm. um, and then and then as like over the last few years I've found mine's 
maybe because I've become more comfortable with that those things that I were trying to, to articulate that now my only real motivation for doing music on a with any kind of kaha has been inspiring other others like you know like moments when I would come back to Otaki when I was still doing music kind of going hard in it a little bit and and hearing um mm. you know Rangatahi oh you perceive hey, you're, you're from Otaki I rap too here listen and doing the rap and you know knowing that that was an impact that I was making uh that moved me much more than whatever that then that inward looking motivation to write or to create mm. or, or mm. To, to make in the music channel at least and now I'm I find much more so I've been writing these short stories and I find way more uh, joy and motivation in in anticipating and hoping that there's going to be impact through that actual story that I'm telling um, less so than the and maybe it's because of where I'm at like I'm a, I'm a noob when it comes to writing so I'm not going to be like no one's going to be coming to me look, uh, asking me to be their writing mentor right but yeah. maybe these stories will impact one or two people mm. um, and so I find like I've gone back full circle to that mm. that motivation which is quite interesting mm. and it kind of sounds like that I don't know is that a natural kind of growth thing that where you get comfortable with yeah. um, with an art form yeah, yeah. well I, I think know. it's I mean in my time in broadcasting unless you were the front front person well my my particular and Tony's got a, a you know he, he he has been a presenter but mostly I really enjoyed being behind the camera mm. or behind the mic or I mean I think naturally I'm 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 a shy person but it doesn't it hasn't always I haven't always been perceived as that but the idea of putting yourself out there and promoting yourself yet I still find that a stroke I find that mm. you know I admire people that can especially mm-hmm. with you know the social media and the way people build that and I see it in our young people but you know I, I have a fear of I guess being found out and that's mm-hmm. that imposter syndrome mm-hmm. so you know I talked about learning on the job you know winging it yeah and always thinking one day someone's going to go actually you know have you done, where are your credentials where, yeah, mm-hmm. you know and um, staying one head at, you know one step ahead of the critics mm-hmm. and so making um, I guess where, where I go with that is that um, I'm learning to be more com- comfortable and more proud of the body of work mm. that, I, that I've achieved. And I mean, Tainui reminds me all the time, you know, um, because it's not a braggers, I'm not out there bragging about, oh, you know, I've made all this stuff. Mm. But what I'm seeing is that I'll actually pull something out that I made 10, 15, 20 years ago, and I've learned a lot because I keep reflecting back on how I did stuff then and what I'm doing now. Um, and uh, and I think actually that's that's really good in the mm. well it's really good it it talks to me mm-hmm. about a time or it talks about you know it's in a context that you know we're still living mm. and I think that that's important as an artist to have those times where you realise that you know it's not we used to say you're only as good as the last thing you've made mm. and that's a truism I guess we all think you know in terms of keeping us motivated, creative or depressed (laughs) but um, you know to get to a point where you're actually going I actually did something with that work and it was you know oh I'll just pull that out and have a look at it and and it's it's yeah it it tells you something and I mean I'll I'll see Tainui can segue into you know the Taumata series maybe but also I mean you do you have a perspective about having been a front 
front, fronting a whole lot of your own work and other other work, honey? As a presenter, mm. or being a face sort of yeah. thing. Only incidentally, um, being a presenter or a voiceover artist is just one of the tools as a communicator that mm. you have. Um, and because, you know, I could remember my lines and not stuff it up too much, um, I was able to do it. Um, and it's part of why I've loved what I've done, is because of the sheer variety. Mm-hmm. Like from the very beginning, whether I was doing researching, writing, scripting, producing, st- studio direction, whatever it is, I've loved it. Mm. And I've still loved doing it all. Mm. And whenever I get the chance to research or present, or I just love it. Mm-hmm. It just fit me like a glove. Every finger was just something. Mm about the world and I've always been grateful for the fact that it fitted so comfortably. Um, you said there a little earlier on, bro, about uh, kind of returning to some ideas. Mm. Um, and that just triggered off a thing in me because I know that part of this cope-up is um, bounces out of liter- uh, books in the world of literature. Because mm. sto- as you... You realise after decades of making stories that you perhaps only tell a very few stories Mm -hmm. in a number of ways, Mm -hmm. in a number of ways. And for me, uh, those stories have either been um, either about identity, Mm -hmm. in other words, uh, what is a (laughs) Māori, or it's been about war, uh, and that's to do with the darkest and the brightest of the human experience, Mm -hmm. or it's to do with music. Vibrations. So for me, I can break most of my work into those three mm. kinds of categories. Now, as I sit now and think back on the things that informed me when I was a kid or a teenager and the stories that turned me on, uh, yeah, but those are the days of libraries. Mm. And I used to go to the library and read, um, you know, I was in Christchurch, and so it was a fairly Catholic Western view of things, perhaps, but, you know, all the Egyptian, the Greek tales, you, you go through all of that stuff. My mother noticed my interest in literature and music and stuff like that. And I remember reading, oh, I was saying when I was 10, I read um, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, sorry, not Oscar Wilde, um, Oliver Twist. Mm-hmm. Oliver Twist, Entailed Two Cities, and then Les Miserables, between the ages of 10 and 13 or so. And it was also a time when they had classic comics. Mm-hmm when great works of literature were just put out in comic form. Right. And so whether it was The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, you got these great dramatic stories in comic form. Mm. And those two books of Dickens and Hugo were the first kind of like serious books that I read. And what blew me away, apart from the storytelling, was notions of justice. Mm. Yes, it was England at the time, or Jean Valjean and the French, and but just notions of injustice and sacrifice really burned into me, I suppose. And they were such intense kind of stories. Mm. And when I reread those books years later, there's much that I didn't see back then. In particular, um, love, mm-hmm. particularly Name is Arabla. The evocations of love are just bloody astonishing. I didn't know that when I was 11 or 12 or whatever. <laughs> But I remember those stories and those great works of literature impacting on my mind. Mm. And later on in my teen years, I started pursuing my uh, Reo and Tikanga and the stories of my own people 
and tribe and learning about our stories of injustice and these things started just joining together mm. and consequently again the sense of privilege that I was able to get into a career where I was able to be me mm-hmm. being able to just tell stories in all sorts of different ways and you know I sometimes thought to myself I remember doing a documentary in the Māori Battalion in 1990 took some of the old soldiers overseas to Europe and Africa and it was an amazing trip mm-hmm. It was my first proper authorial doco, I suppose. And then in the end of it, I thought to myself, far out, where do I go from here? What can you do after telling their story? Mm. But I, again, when I was young, I didn't want to get into the shiny bullshit. Mm-hmm. The award syndromes, mm. this matter. As Libby says, you know, sometimes you're not a, you're, 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 you're only as good as your most recent work. The Europeans would say you're only as good as your best work. Mm. Whenever that happened mm. to be. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's this whole privilege of being able to tell stories that, for me, address matters of justice mm. uh, has been really important. And my Māori-ness has merely flavoured those stories that were implanted in me mm. by my mum and my, by my reading mm-hmm. when I was younger. Kia ora. Um, the, that, the point you made there about the... Um you know, all of that money that you do that you've done just kind of fitting. Do you think any of that has been like a, just a love of the the mechanical learning that you've had to do for those roles? In terms of mechanical, the toys are fabulous. Oh no, sorry, I mean just the actual <laughs> learning. <laughs> but in terms of the act of learning, yeah, I'm a big believer in that you stay alive by learning. Mm. And yes, it's an industry because of the technology or storytelling techniques and the needs of the people. Mm. You know, um, what we needed, to, the stories we needed to tell in the 80s are quite different to what we're able to tell now. Mm. You know, I remember vividly not being able to shoot on what I because there was such a suspicion of cameras and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the stories have to be relevant for the time. And as, as Libby says, one of the delights we have with our young people, working with our young people, is apart from just um, getting um, the appropriate kind of buzz by looking after our future, is the act of staying relevant, mm. really. And one of the ways we can stay relevant is by passing on what we know. And if you're not a dickhead about it, and if you've got the outer hand, it's true, and it comes from a place where we can be inclusive. Mm. And, you know, we're here for our little people we're here for each other mm. and our tikanga tell us so and show us how mm-hmm. mm. which is another glory of living in a place and like all taking mm. all these things are taken for granted um, and I think just while I remember it um, the camera would ask in terms of what would a young Libby ask of her as a vocational mm. guidance thing I would say that you know do whatever you truly want to do mm. yeah. whatever you truly want to do because you're never going to get that nickel out of your mind mm. unless you gave it a go. Yeah. And that's the only way to know whether you've got an inclination or a talent or an mm-hmm. ability for it. Mm. And if you haven't, hate to pay, just make new dreams. Mm. So really, just do what you truly want to do. Because I think a big challenge facing us, our people, and we see it with the young people we work with, uh, and I'll sort of frame it in one way. When you come up through a Māori immersion, edu- immersion education system, there are certain curricula, certain things you can do. 
and in terms of extracurricular, there's a certain degree of sports and kapahaka and wakaama and that kind of world. Not all students are satisfied with just that mm. because they want to try other things. But often these kura don't have the resources yet because mm-hmm. they're still a growing mm. kind of thing. And so sometimes we've seen, at first with concern, but then delight, some of our younger people leave and go to mainstream with a secure Māori background, mm. but discovering a love for Japanese or German or mm. just trying new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's one of the things that we find with our young people, and it's important, that we just simply encourage people to be whatever they want to be. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things about the Māori experience as some as people being colonised and all of that is that we've been categorised. Mm. We've been categorised for a whole heap of reasons and those categories have really stuffed us over mm. and the more we can think out of categories and I suppose you're always looking for some kind of normalcy where to be Māori is just a normal kind mm. of thing and to be Māori and to be normal is, is, the, is quite a staggering diversity of stuff mm. you can do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what you truly want to do, mm. go for it. I would contend, now after having been around for 60 or so years and having learned enough about reo and tikanga, that if you take your reo and tikanga with you, you will have both a shield and a weapon, I suppose, mm. with which to you know, approach your future. Mm. Yeah. And if I just um, add to that, Peter, the, um, I, you know, neglected to say that coming through um, newsrooms like I did in the 80s, and I was, you know, 16, 17 years of old age when I first stepped into those what a, what a you know, to see, to be inside commercial radio of the day and, you know, we call it casual racism and think that, you know that described it, it was racist mm. and it was hurtful and it was something that you know, I didn't have the weapons of any type other than um, to try and be the best at what I could do, which at that point was reading the news and writing some of it. Um, you know, I think you can probably talk to, I think of Henari Ua, who was one of my mentors who came up through, um, you know, the Broadcasting Corporation, NZ Broadcasting Corporation, then Radio, New, you know, which turned into Radio New Zealand. You know, he was a, a product of his time and a, and a formidable broadcaster who spoke, you know, this plum English... Um, and was, you know, incredibly well prepared, always did his research, had files and files and files of notes, you know, knew the Māori world because uh, he'd travelled and covered every significant event, you know, in the time that he was a broadcaster. Um, and I always remember, you know, this this grandson of um, Tāpirana Nata, you know, he, he suffered from the same imposter syndrome that I described. Mm. You know, he he was a Māori broadcaster, um, but he couldn't be a Māori broadcaster mm. until later on in his life, you know, until later on in his life, because there was no... The door wasn't even ajar, mm. you know, when he entered that world. So, you know, and I think... Um, I'm, I'm pleased that he saw, he saw before he passed, you know, that the world was changing. Mm. And that, you know, we were no longer... Um, outside of the studios or outside of, you know, we were behind the cameras, um, we were building. We mm. weren't there yet, and, and, mm. and I know that we're not there. We're not there fully yet. And I say to the kids, you know, and I say to each other, and this is probably what motivates me and empowers me to keep going, is, <coughs> you know, now that we have um, 
we have the capacity in terms of the access to technology because it's all shrunk down to the to the point where you know we're sitting here around around your zoom and mm. microphone and laptop you know when I started broadcasting I mean you didn't do these outside you didn't do mm. interviews without a lot of technology and a lot mm-hmm. of equipment and therefore it was the realm and in the control even though they called it broadcasting and mainstream of the elite mm. and so we 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 are telling I'm telling them you know they came for our language or they came for our land they came for our our culture and our language and they came for our children and all of that still exists today mm, but they'll come for our stories mm. and if we don't tell them and if we don't you know uh, if we don't grow our capacity to be able to tell these stories mm. these epic stories that we're holding we're holding on to those mm. we're not letting anyone through, anyone through the gate until we're ready to tell them ourselves mm. and I mean that is so important mm. um, and so what I see in them when we say things like that is a hunger because they know they are able, mm. you know, and if they, and that's that's really exciting because I remember thinking years and years and years ago, when we, will will I ever be able? And some of that still was a question mm. that I asked myself, you know. So we made stuff, we've done stuff, and I talked about that body of work within a framework of other people controlling. Mm. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, controlling the medium. And I think you know we're 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 out from we're getting out from underneath that, mm. um, and we just have to keep our eye on you know there's there's a lot of opportunity, and then we could waste that, mm. we could squander that really quickly. There you go. Well, I mean, Libby uses the word the imposter syndrome, mm. and there's two meanings to my mind, and one is what I think she was referring to is I guess what creative souls feel mm. in many ways when they question themselves and agonise over it all and all I can say about my honey is that she really referred to the art of doing it Mm. and she's a person whose creative soul is fully expressed by actually doing it Mm. I I tend to plan things but first (laughs) (laughs) I admire that the other other imposter thing is though and I came across it recently and that saddens me is um, it was an Airbnb family went to meet them and it's a typical conversation with Māori who don't know their language. Mm. And they say in the course of a conversation, oh, do you speak Māori? And I say, yes. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's that sense of shame and embarrassment. Imposterhood, mm. perhaps. Mm. Uh, am I real Māori because mm. I don't speak the language? And no matter what age they are, they can never be blind to the, um, the sexiness Mm. and the appeal and the attraction of having the language and the culture because mm. it's just growing and growing all the time. Mm. And so I am really concerned about the gap between the cultural haves and the cultural have-nots. Mm. And, of course, our stories, and this is what we do, are a way of making, creating bridges so they can be two-way. And I said earlier, I was just talking about my earlier influences because, in a way, one of the things I've realised is that I tend to be a diplomat, mm-hmm. I suppose it would my first job in the Rest Relations Office, 80 to 84, Springbok Tour. Conciliatory, diplomat, diplomatic, bring two different sides together, have an argy-bargy, come to a conciliation, all that kind of thing. Mm. And that's kind of been a part of me. And so I've parlayed that into my work by ensuring that my stories somehow um, encourage, um, I suppose, uh, understanding that can mm. be interpreting the Māori world for the Pākehā or the Pākehā world for the Māori, mm. all that kind of stuff. 
all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, I think the other thing about all this that is that this is actually a fantastic time. Um, the storytelling techniques that Libby and I worked with back in the day, whatever those technologies were, everything's changed so much mm. and everything is so much more accessible in terms of telling stories and that's to be celebrated mm. um, I also think that in all of that somehow we have to be able to bridge uh, to those of our whanaunga who do not yet know their language mm. or their mightiness um, I just don't want to see the jealousies or the bitternesses that could erupt between peoples who know who they are and people who don't know who they are for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I've seen a, a elite Māori who know their language mm-hmm. and who use it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. So 2014, um, the October before the, uh, March the 2014 first edition, um, I stood in Canada on a stage at the Imaginative uh, Film Festival in Toronto and invited a pretty packed cinema of about, I don't know, 750 people like um, to come to Māori land in Ōtaki that we were going to have this festival mm. and it was going to be the first Indigenous film festival in the Southern Hemisphere well the first one in New Zealand uh, and in Aotearoa New Zealand and that it was going to be in Ōtaki and I remember like standing there and then going what am I going to say next because all I could see was like <laughs> the um, things we didn't have like you know mm. we were in a city like Toronto I mean I could and I was able to sort of state there and then, but we don't have uh, hotels. We don't have any skyscrapers or any, you know, stories above three, I think, three-storey buildings. But we have... Um, Do we, we have three-storey buildings? Well, we don't have anything above two-storey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've got two storeys, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they, but we didn't have a lot of hotels, motels. Mm. Um, and so it sort of started sort of painting this picture of, you know, the things that we didn't have. Not because I wanted to, you know, how do you invite people and say, actually, we don't have anything for you. <laughs> but I said, so but what we do have is we, you know, come to our beach, come to our, mm. ma- our maunga, come to our motiri, come to the place, you know, the, the puna of our, um, of our uh, you know, our five hapu, um, and we will look after you. Mm. We will look after you you know, we'll manaki you and, that, and explain that that was our most important thing that we could offer. Mm. And then kind of got off and, and then off the stage, I mean, and then all these people came up to me going, we're coming! And I was kind <laughs> of like, oh, that shit! <laughs> you know, and that's really how it started. Mm. So that was October and then we had till March to pull it together and, of course, Pat and Towns had their lawnmowing business. Tainu and I were making, um, I think we were making, it's in the bag at that stage still. So we were all over the country, you know, with a big crew making that and you know, um, you know, and on the skeleton, like I think there were four, uh, there were five of us that started the festival. Um, one of them was my niece Maddie, and she had just finished, um, a, you know, a double major in politics and health, Indigenous health uh, studies. And I, I begged for her to come down. Can she just mm. come down and help me? And that was like, I think a week before the festival. <laughs> and it, we bought this caravan and this little tiny pod, old vintage caravan, and we, you know. I think we started with fifteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where we got that money from. It, was, it didn't come out of our pocket, so I remember <laughs> that because we you know we were skinned as well. <laughs> so we got a grant, and it may have been one of these community um, creative New Zealand community grants, mm-hmm. fifteen hundred bucks, and then the caravan cost us two and a half thousand dollars. And so we, I think I might have borrowed some money. It was all very 
rapid mm. and crazy because we'd announced it. And then I remember going and seeing the Kura and saying, you know, we're having this film festival. And they were like, okay, yep. So could you come? Yep. <laughs> I mean, everywhere we went, you know, why are you doing this? What yep. is it about? Mm. Oh, it's about... You know, because what we did have was the films. Mm. We had amazing films, and we knew that, you know, we had these amazing filmmakers coming, and so it was a real thing. We mm. were going to do this, and um, yeah, it was like, oh, when I think, I don't even know how we got that off the ground. But we were determined to share these stories that we'd seen, and that was the motivation for it. You know, I, I'd been going to film festivals for about 14, 13, 14 years. Um, as part of delegations, you know, I went with Fakata Māori when um, Māori television wasn't even a thing. It was a year before MTS got started, and the 22 of us went over, filmmakers and producers, directors, in this Māori television um, delegation, and, you know, to Canada and to Toronto. And, you know, like I'd been going to these things, Tainu had been going to these things, festivals, and that's where we'd see all these amazing stories, and that's where we sort of saw... So much of ourselves reflected back on us, and, and there was power in that. You know? mm. And then I'd come back, and you'd be out the back doing the dishes at Kona and Marae, and somebody'd go, Oh, where have you been, cuz? And I'd go, oh, I've just been in Canada or Berlin or wherever. And like, I probably got maybe another sentence out before I could see that I'd lost them. They'd mm. like wandered off into, mm-hmm. you know, you know what's happening in the rugby? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's Fiti Tara doing? You know? mm-hmm. And it just. It's, so I didn't used to talk about it much, mm. and you know, like I said earlier, promoting something I didn't. It was ne- I didn't want people to think it was all about me, mm. and it wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to share it. Mm. I just didn't have it because how do you paint a picture of what it's like to have a group of um, filmmakers and storytellers from around the indigenous world when they come to a place and what 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 energy and what you know uh, momentum is is um, created when all those uh, storytellers come together. Mm. So, you know, 2014, a blur. I remember that, um, you know, Chelsea and Taika came and we put Taika on trial for um, crimes against Indigenous storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, as a mock um, international Indigenous uh, jury. We did, we just sort of made it up as we mm-hmm. went along, we really did. But it worked, you know, and in terms of people came to our, our you know, we got a lot of support out of the community, you know, from businesses saying, yep, we love this idea, here's a, you know, here's, here's a donation, and mm. we were kind of stunned at the level of donations, like, you know, it was a thousand dollars here and a thousand dollars there, but it was really, you know, and taking that word indigenous and putting it out there, um, we were asked, that was always the thing, what is it, what's mm. indigenous case? What is indigenous? Mm. Filmmaking, you know. And we had, you know, we had obviously champions that we could talk to about, uh, you know, we could point to and say, well, Medita, Medita's been working in the Indigenous film space internationally in Hawaii and LA, talking about it, you know, uh, Barry Barclay, uh, Don Selwyn from, you know, they've been, it's not, we didn't make this word up. Mm. It's just we don't know what this word is because mm. we don't use it. We use tangata whenua mm. or we use Māori. But, you know, Māori being ubiquitous for all Māori, mm. <laughs> but obviously not the truth because, mm. you know, um, we're very tribal. So, so you know, talking about it like that and then um, then people thinking for the first two years there was this, this idea that it was just Māori, that we were just 
mm. you know, that, no, mm. you can't come in. And yet I have to sort of mihi to all our Pākehā um, whānau here in Ōtaki because they were the first ticket buyers. Mm. They, you know, they were there in their droves and they loved it. Um, and it was us, always us, that are going to stand on the edges and check it out first because it's like, you know, what are they up to in there? Mm. You know? And it comes to that thing about elitism and it mm. comes to like how you tell the story and who you... But again, you know, we became globally hot really quickly and that is a thing because, you know, it, the first two years... We were sort of out there at film festivals around the world going, here's our banner or our flyer for the next festival. But people are like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. And, you know, without Maddie and her incredible skills, and <coughs> you know, build our website, build our Facebook and social media profile, do all of our promotional collateral, mm. like all of that design work, you know, including the programs and all that sort of stuff, we probably would have sunk without a trace. I mean, you know, we would have, no, we would have fought pretty hard to keep mm. going, but she professionalised it and gave it a shop front mm. that was, you know, undeniably um, strong, beautiful and evocative and really told the story. She did all that. You know, we were just, I mean, I was just lucky that my sister gave birth to her <laughs> in the sense that she was born to do this, you yep. know. And so she's an, she's been an incredible, um, you know, she's grown up with the festival, um, to make it and you know I just think she's done it again this year she's just you know you need a driver like that mm. so that it allows you know myself and Tainui and others to go out there and so everyone's got their place mm. and their strength mm-hmm. and we are a Fano. it's definitely a Fano um, run uh, festival but I just you know this is our seventh year coming up on the 18th of March and it's just you know these conversations that were really frustrating and really difficult within our own um, hapuri, really difficult. Mm. You know, challenged all the time about the validity of the idea or the what is the point of it. And Tony, we talked about, you know, we really, really, our rangatahi, we put a lot of effort into what is the culture of, you know, um, kapahaka and sports because we're bloody good at that mm. here in Otsaki. You know, we just love that. Mm. And it's true. It's in our, you know, um, just like most of the rest of the country, but we're particularly good at mm. it. <laughs> so you can, Did you I can say pull that? up those stats at Tefano, they're all there. Yeah, 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 you know, cool runnings, <laughs> wakama. <laughs> you know, and, and our whanau really, you know, work hard at all that. Mm. And and breaking down the stereotype or the, or the assumption or the kind of illusion that film is entertainment. Mm. Indigenous film is actually, you know, it's a statement in political um, survival. Mm. You know, it's putting those really hard stories out there in the world on the big screen so that you cannot ignore what's happening, mm. you know, with the pipelines going everywhere and the, you know, these are, you know, with our kids getting shot, um, with languages being wiped off the face of the earth, with forests being mowed mm. down. And it sounds like one after the other, when I describe it like that, it just sounds like, oh, I don't know if I'd want to go to that festival. <laughs> there's five days of what? <laughs> but there's huge moments of, you know, it's humanity and it's parts of the world and it's language and culture and survival, not, you know, survival against everything and mm. joy and humour and zombies. Mm. And freaking, you know, it's creative. It just, it's the gamut and it's, it's, Astounding. Mm. So the conversations, getting back to the point of the hard conversations I had for years of people trying to dismiss it, or oh, I don't, you know, the thing that I, I get most from my own whanau, my wider, large, extended whanau, is, oh, cousin, not really into that. Yeah. Have you been? Oh, no, no, it's not really for me, cousin. Then, next thing, you know, they're like, 
man, I went and saw a couple of movies. I'm there. I'm there. What can I do? Mm, what choice. do you need? What help do you need? Nahapu gave us a mandate uh, three years ago. It was like winning an Oscar, you know, a mandate from your, you know, your, from your hapuri, from your mm. um, iwi. Um, you know, things like not having to batter down the doors at certain, you know, of our kura or other places seeking that support they come and say what are, you know here they are here's mm. you know your kai uh, hapoi who are the rangatahi that stand up in front of every screening and it's like you know we just applied for some funding on Friday last Friday um, and to be able to say you know our community you know when I first said we don't have much but we will manaki you mm. and, and then going <laughs> Looking at me, I really hope that's the case. If that's our tikanga, and it is our tikanga, mm. can I state that on the mm. stage, uh, you know, the other side of the Wooden Northern Hemisphere, and know that they, these people, and that's the thing that they reflect back to us. Mm. International visitors, when I've been, you know, recently over at, uh, you know, in Toronto or France at a film festival, have said, You've got to come to this festival, they've said to another, you know, filmmaker. You've got to come to this festival. This is by, you know, this is like the the best festival I've ever been to. Mm. They look after you, mm. you know, the people take you fishing, they take you out to get tuna, they, you know, like, and the film, and, and there's this whole, like, it's filmmaker-centric. So the filmmakers are at the centre of it with our rangatahi. Mm. That's really important. And then everybody in the village is is able to interact mm. there's no elitism mm. there's no like no sorry the filmmakers are over here mm. and you guys public thanks for paying your six bucks to come in but can you just not hassle them yeah stay oh, out man. of the green room you know <laughs> there is none of that yeah and like we have had many um examples and many times when our filmmakers have been um how do i say it roko napped <laughs> And taken places, and yep. they've disappeared for like you know a few hours. Yeah, come back with huge smiles on their mm. faces because they've you know the farmers go, oh, what are you up to? Come with me. Yeah, yep. and taking them out the river or over to the lake for a paddle or choice. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's neat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this year we've got ninety-two international filmmakers coming. Cool. At last count, mm-hmm. that's huge. Mm. And yet, you know, this is a town that can make space. Mm. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, we're still here, seven years on. Choice. And uh, why Otaki? Because it's obviously important um, to you that it's here. Otherwise, I imagine well, there's a bunch of other places that it could yeah, be. Yeah, no, there is no other place it could be. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we actually wanted to bring the world to us so that we didn't have to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> but also, you know, I mean, that's our point of difference. It's how unique it is. I mean, we didn't intend it to be, but it is our unique point of difference. Mm. Um, film festivals are now popping up all over the place in this country so and other festivals that are calling themselves indigenous film festivals and you know initially you're like oh here we go mm. but then you think good there mm. should be a film festival in every town if that's a way that we can see our stories because mm. the more people see our stories the more we create the cohesion and the, and the conversation and it breaks down all of those kind of things and it, and it puts power to the, the rise of indigenous cinema and all of that which we really stand, you know, stand side and shoulder to shoulder with and solidarity for. Mm. The other thing, though, is, um, you know, I looked at Sundance Film Festival and went, we're going to be like Sundance. Mm. And then went to Sundance last year, and I hadn't been there for, like, 16 years or something, and Sundance grew in a small village ski resort in Utah up in the mountains. It has a permanent population back then of 6,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now it has a permanent population of about 85,000 wow. people. Mm. But at Sundance, in the time of Sundance, it swells to about 220,000 people. Yes, yep. And it has every dickhead from Hollywood mm. and, and, you know, all of the, you know, the kind of um, commercial vanity that mm. goes with it. And it's a shift fight. Mm-hmm. Like you can't even get to a screening. You have to stand in a queue to stand in a queue to yep. get to the ticket thing. And it's just full of elitists. And no, you can't come in. And no, you've got the wrong pass. Mm. And it pumps, you know, something like 91 million US dollars into the local economy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they want to keep all that going. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But this, the point of Sundance was to be the screen for the in, uh, independent filmmaker, you know, those ones that couldn't get into the supposed mm. A-list festivals. So, you know, no, we don't want that. Mm. We are clear, you know, we don't have Vodaf- uh, sorry, we don't have um, Spark Presents or, mm. you know, presented by Hyundai. I'm sorry if I'm, you know, anyone works for them, but <laughs> what I mean is we're not commercially, yeah, yeah. we're social enterprise mm. and we want to cycle or circle um, the money back into, you know, the next generations mm. into our own community, into um, creating skills and uplifting. You know, so we have a lot of volunteers, about 60 volunteers during the week of the festival. And if we can't, and we don't like even the word volunteers, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, they're our, our kaitua. If we cannot make their experience something that they can take to whatever it is mm. they want to do, like if they get in behind the festival and they decide, oh, I really like event management or I really mm. like this. Buzz taking fun people around to look at our, you know, normal Fano activities. Mm. You know, oh, what does that look like? Could that be a mm. Fano tourism business? You know, like what other inspirational or support can we give to other endeavours? You know, it doesn't have to be always about us. Mm. It's just about uplifting our town. And the other thing is, you know, the act of buying the biggest building in Otaki's main street, mm. um, the former Ed Houses building. You know, that was a that was part of our evolution, mm-hmm. um, but it's also part of the, the legacy of, um, or adding to the legacy of our town, mm. our Tauni that has always had very strong Māori, you know, it's, it's our mana whenua, it's mm. our, our, and relationships with Pākehā. Mm. So if Ōtaki is going to be gentrified by the new wave of people, well, you know, we're not going to lock the gate because mm. that's not possible but we will state very strongly and proudly and with a lot of you know no my heart of my inclusion mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that we are, are a Māori t- a town as much as we are a forward looking you know creative hub mm. so yeah hey baby yep so it is the home of the festival and that's not to say that we haven't already been approached on a number of occasions to move um, south, mm-hmm. and our answer to that is no. Mm-hmm. We are very happy to have Māori Land as our annual festival, and you can call it niche. We call it, um, you know, an expression of who we are as mm. the Art Confederation, Atiawa Rokura mm. and Atitoa. Engari, we are very happy to bring Māori Land to town at some point mm-hmm. as a second window, mm-hmm. as a second town festival, shorter. You know, mm. best of if you like, mm-hmm. but that means we're bringing all our kai hapai and our kai to our. They'll have otaki, mm. but we'll do it at town in town. Mm, Kilda, yeah. Uh, and where did the name come from? Ah, Māori Land is. Um, so when I was working on documentaries, um, two things happened. I was doing a um, 
an archival uh, documentary series for, um, and actually, Tony, you voiced that. Mm. I just, <laughs> that's funny. For TVNZ as an independent production, uh, fifth, eighteen, ten years five, ago, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, and um, and it was looking at inside the film archive and looking at the um, Taonga Māori. So what films, what remnants of films mm. still resided there? It was part of their Hokunga Mai um, on Natanga Fitiahua, the the remaining treasures of light. And so these are early New Zealand films that had been shot um, around the Motu. And um, so the earliest one, one of the earliest fragments, and it's only a fragment left of it, it's about a minute and a half, minutes thirty, is a film called The Tangi and Funeral of Hene Today. She was Taroparaha's niece. Mm. And so you've got this cortege, this really, it's all very shaky, and it's all bits and pieces that have been, you know, um, reconstituted, if you like. So you see some tangi scenes, it's all silent, it was 1921. There's people at Rauka and, you know, uh, there's Pafara tuna, tuna, all on the, you know, fence mm. line, and then there's people weaving kono, wahini weaving kono, and there's a hangi, a little bit of hangi, and then... The um, cortages, the funeral cortages, walking down the main street, mm. and there's the glass um, carriage with the coffin in it, and the black horses with the well, you think they're black horses because they're black and white, but with the white plumes on their heads and people walking behind them. Yeah. So they actually yeah, walk yeah. past what is the Ed Houses building, yeah. which is kind of spooky. Yeah, yeah. And then the film basically finishes, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a whole bunch of things that fly up, a couple of credits, and then it's got um, Otaki. Uh, the Los Angeles of the South Pacific and the home of Māori Man Films. And that's the end credit. Mm. And I remember when I first saw that, I went, OK, that's cool. <laughs> and I remember printing that and putting it on my fridge and mm. moved, you know, a lot of places um, uh, until I came home. Oh, no, I was living in Auckland and living in Ōtaki, so it was in a fridge in Ōtaki and a fridge up home. And then I just would ruminate on that and think, that's really cool, and one day... You know, and also I was making documentaries, um, and the whole of that dealt with late 1800s, early 1900s, and at that time the whole of this country was branded tourism mm. for the then New Zealand Tourism Board, or anyway, as Māori Land. Mm-hmm. So all the ephemera, postcards, mm. um, the books, adventures in Māori Land, yeah, mm. books. There was a, yeah, all of that Māori Land, Māori Land, Māori mm. Land. So when we decided to choose the name Māori Land, and it, Oh, it's quite. It's well. It could be a political statement too. I'm not sure, but anyway, <laughs> <It> absolutely is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it. No, no. And um, you know, so when people kind of try to be offended about it, and I'm like, well, the whole country used to be called yeah, Marnie Land, and yeah. isn't that a fabulous thing? Like, there's no other country you could call yeah. Marnie Land, and isn't mm. that a fabulous thing? So, mm. yeah. It's an act of reclamation that yeah. I see as at the core of the whole kaupapa, and that's Hitohu no te tu motuhake rangatiratanga. This is uh, an element of our sovereignty. Mm. And in a modern world, although we happen to work in the story industry, um, you know, we have seen this in areas of our life, tourism, education, justice, all sorts of areas where the Māori way, the Māori perspective, Māori values are somehow finding purchase in these endeavours. Mm. And for us, because we've been able to control everything, um, we've been able to do that with um, quite a degree of success. Mm. Killed it. Um, why uh, why are indigenous people and I can only speak from yeah, the Māori perspective why 
why are Indigenous people so proactive, and I think you might have touched on it before, at telling stories? And good. I mean, they might go hand in hand. Mm. But. A, it's in the DNA. Mm. I mean, Indigenous peoples, wherever we're from, mm. um, link to the land and to traditions mm. that talk of stories. And it's not just oratory. You know, there's the crafts, there's the artwork, there's music, there's all sorts of ways of telling stories. And it's very much a part of our DNA. It's storytelling, not unlike the media of today, that dispersal of information feeding it to the people mm. feeding information and power shaped the stories of the people it's absolutely a part of our humanity mm. flavoured by our indigeneity um, yeah, that's, the, that's, that's the bottom line there and the place in this modern world for indigenous stories I think is becoming ever more apparent because many of the ills of western world have been because those peoples have gotten far away from the truths of nature mm. or the roots of their environment, mm-hmm. you know, and they're chasing some other shibboleth, some other taumata that mm. has a nice bottom line. And so inevitably all the peoples on the planet in time will come back to the truths of nature and, luckily for the planet, as remembered and expressed by the indigenous mm. people. Yeah, Kaura. I think it's connection with, in connection with um, environment, nature, whenua, um, that unbroken connection in many ways or the re- or or mm. as the urban experience or the colonized experience returning back to what is the you know the connect- connection point or mm. the connection which is rooted in the storytelling mm. um, canon of storytelling and and it's also the values like I think many of us um, question the value systems that we we live alongside mm. and we we jump from one, you know, we jump into and jump out of them. You know, I, I find it really interesting. We were recently um, privy to some a workshop on values <laughs> that was offered to us. And we sort of do as much as we can to see what's happening out there and how people think, you know, and it was a values workshop. It was very interesting because um, it's not rocket science. <laughs> mm. And yet we were in a room full of educated people who were like, kind of expressing surprise at these you know like the values of the most important people and Tony alluded to this before we're social beings so the mm-hmm. most important value that people identify and this is New Zealand but you could apply this probably worldwide is connection mm. and then the next one is you know feeling well social connection the next one is something like you know um, you know all of the the values of um Environment, you know, the the effects of or the contact with the environment, clean water, mm. clean air, um, love. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, <laughs> but, but, but then why are we doing all the things that you know? Yeah, well, exactly. Like, you know, I mean, that's that's not rocket science. Only if you haven't strayed from them, right? Yeah, yeah. If you have and you have latched onto those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. Then it that might be revelatory. Yeah, you know, exactly. but, wow, but this is okay. all the this is the very thinking. I mean, this is this was, we were coming at this from an um, interest. In, I can't quite remember why we were there in, in the sense that the workshop was about how advertising companies are having having to shift to this value mm. adoptive values um, understanding of of value systems, if you like. In order to get their products out, and yet, like it's like it's it's. Uh, so what we're saying is, 
we don't all want to be capitalists and we don't all want to like you know chase the dollar and we don't off oh, you know having time to develop um, as artists or mm. be creative or you know we want to look after each other we want to know our neighbors you know mm. these these really and they're intrinsic values you know talking about values so to interrupt just seen on the net Karen Walker face masks and duty free. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. You know, yeah. just the business to be made out of fear. <laughs> yep. Oh, they were they yes masks. That they was were, quick, Karen. They, no, they've been there for a while. I saw oh, them a, a few months ago. In a funny world where we think that um, keeping up with Joneses, you know, is important. Mm. But the world is kind of intuiting that it needs another way. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested in the States not because they're, the own, they're not the only authoritarian regime around. Mm. It's just that their system is so transparent mm. and because their story is broadcast around the mm. world so you can see it all in its murky ugliness. Mm. And it's like the citizens of the United States in a way are suffering on behalf of all of us. Mm. And While we watch. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the world is intuiting that things are fucked, mm. systems are fucked, politics. They've become, you know so ossified and just irrelevant in so many ways and all the corruption whether yeah. it's it's everywhere mm. and people don't know where to go we're living in a marvel universe mm. <laughs> we are yeah. and so when we so often we, we get people appreciate the festival because we've given them uh, an inkling that there are other stories and there are other mm. truths other hopes to be had um but the other thing, too, I think, is that for me, the indigenous experience is one that um, the kind of a burgeoning giant uh, in terms of the connectivity and the collaborations that are starting to be made cool. between indigenous peoples for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got some projects happening in the film realm and other people are trying different things. And over time, I can just see the indigenous peoples of the world where appropriate combining for whatever reason. And now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Paperback Gorillas was brought to you by the number 23 and our damn selves. It costs us about $20 a month to keep these episodes online so that you can listen, uh, as well as the time and effort that goes into recording the corridor uh, and making it happen. But we pay that because we think the kaupapa of sharing that mana-enhancing corridor is important and that it's worth it. If you agree and you've enjoyed the episode so far, then please consider donating uh, to help with those costs. You can do so at patreon.com slash paperbackgorillas. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-a-p-e-r-b-a-c-k-g-u-e-r-r-i-l-l-a-s. Every dollar that you give helps us make sure that that mana-enhancing corridor gets shared and gets heard. So thank you. I wanted to touch on a um, something you mentioned earlier, Libby, around a, uh, a former. This is quite a tangent, but a, a former politician uh, mm. coming into the hub, uh, into the Maori land hub, and uh, well, actually, do you want to oh, give yeah. that tell that story? So, so Ed houses um, the beautiful Ed houses building. Mm. Used to um, buy my pants from there. Oh, at least you bought. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> We've had quite a few. Um, I think I bought them. Young fellas, well, yeah. not young fellas anymore, <laughs> turn up and say, oh, yeah, we love dead houses. And because uh, um, they were the first and only place we could get our Levi jeans from. And then Mr. Ed House, who was a lovely, lovely man, mm. you know, telling me how he apprehended, used to apprehend <laughs> some of my cousins or others, you know, yep. 
Um, but they were good shoplifters because, you know, he'd make them do mahi. And then oh, yeah, he yeah. really liked them, yeah. you know, like he really genuinely <laughs> saw the human being and not the naughty Choice. boy. And yeah, that's yeah. really special. I mm. just wanted to share that story of, you know, it's like Robin Hood, mm. you know, um, but lovely. And lots of people come into Ed houses and they really enjoy the fact that, you know, again, it must be the Māori land way. We, we didn't have any money when we asked if we could mm. make an offer on the building. Uh, and then we had to try and find that money. And we've, you know, mostly done that. We still have a, a slight mortgage, but you know, the, it's a it's builded and they will come. And mm. you know, we're really lucky and we love being in that space. And since we've been in the space since 2017, you know, we've put a little new some of the new roof on. We've painted where we can. We just got creative because we can't. You know, this is what we've got, mm. and it's big. Um, but we've had over close to 200 events there, and we've had over 25,000 people come mm. through. You know that's like the festival, but because it's not a screening venue, it's a um, but you know it's the main hub when the festival's on to the mm. office and all the rest of it. But we've got a Toy Matara art gallery in there. We've had like um, lots of amazing musicians and theatre productions come through, and we'll just keep doing that because mm. you know, it's it's valuable. But the other thing is, we've just done our strategic, refreshed our strategic plan, and um, we have decided to be bold and put it out there because this is what we're doing mm. and it's again selling your story well not selling your story but putting it out there and mm. being like as you said you know say it mm. say it because it's true what we're doing is um, we are now the Māori Land Hub um, is a centre of excellence for film for indigenous film and the creative arts and since we started Jeez. saying that in the last couple of months it's like really emboldened mm. and, our, our rangatahi are like really excited and our rangatahi um, we've got a whole rangatahi strategy and they come from all over the motu now so we have a, we have like these teams they're either napakiaka who are the heart of um, all that Māori land do, does in terms of they program their own rangatahi film festival every year during the festival um, they are the heart, the beating heart um, uh, the roots napakiaka, the roots of um, Māori land then we have through our lens which is our rangatahi leadership program and we've just been in Finland, northern Finland and Sami land doing workshops. They do peer-to-peer workshop. Um, so we took four rangatahi over there. They make films with um, they made films with about 18 Sami rangatahi. Choice. Those films will show up Māori land. Before that, we took another group in January over to Taiwan and they worked in two communities and made um, films in indigenous Taiwan. Uh, we're going to Canada up into... Um, uh, Montreal, and then we're going to Greenland through our lens, and they're the, they are amazing young filmmakers. Mm. And then we have all the programs that we're running for our rangatahi here in Otaki, and that includes Match, which is the Tech Creative Hub, which is everything to do with technology and creative arts. And these things we've devised as a as we've looked around and seen that there isn't an offer, mm. there is not an offer for our rangatahi, and they're smart. You know, they they run it all of this technology they're born digital so let's you know let them use these tools mm. or provide the tools and we've literally bought one desktop you know apple one by one by one as we've managed to and it's neat they come in and they make stuff and they get art in and mm. and so when we launched we had match last year for the first time and and this particular prime uh <laughs> this particular politician former politician um came in with a group of others from one of the government agencies that we were looking to apply for some funding to create 
you know, to actually grow this program into an after-school um, creative hub. And so we had a workshop going there at the time, and we had the amazing Coco Solid in there who um, was about to release um, Aroha Bridge, and she showed the rangatahi there, there were about 80 of them, some of the Aroha Bridge animation. It's the first Māori animation on mainstream TV. It's the first animation directed by a woman and created by a woman. Mm. So she was sharing that work with them, and then she basically said, "So now what I'm going to do is pa- um, pass around some some pads and some and some drawing, you know, tools, and you know, create uh, six boxes, and and you know, this is how you do animation. Mm. You start by drawing in the boxes, and you tell your own story. So, mm. and then the next thing it was dead silent, mm-hmm. as all these rangatahi just started drawing, and you forget. And these are um, parikura or um, that are ages from the year nine up. Mm-hmm. And what we realised afterwards that, that by the time they usually hit year nine, that part of their curriculum, you know, the art creating being artistic, mm. isn't actually a focus. Mm. So they don't get drawing time. You know, they might get iPad time and other. Mm. So, you know, watching these kids just draw and be really, you know, into it. So, he, so this group from Wellington arrived at that moment. And he looked around, had a quick look. Oh, yeah, lots of kids, lots of brown faces. Okay. And then he came in and we did our mihimis. And, and then first question out of the box was, so how are you going to keep all those kids in there from joining gangs? Mm. And it was a real... Yeah, I guess we... You know, it, was a, it took a lot of... Um, it actually took quite a lot from, <clears throat> for me not just to tell him to leave. Mm. And I still wrestle with that decision. Maybe I should have done that. As an act of, you know... No, um, you're bigger than that, babe. Well, I don't know, but, you know, because, the you know, we tried to explain why and this is why we're looking at, you know, applying to the certain fund for digital competencies and, mm. you know, we tick all those boxes. But it became really apparent to me that, you know, despite all the, the efforts that we make constantly in telling our story from our perspective and trying to rush those stereotypes mm. and try and actually look at the positives not because we want to sugarcoat anything or look at through the you know the the lens of you know pick a little bit smudgy so you can't see the bad shit mm. but like if we keep reflecting that how do we grow mm. or how do we extend upon you know what our what our now um, you know 30 year vision that started with the challenge of how do we grow uh, the real the real speakers in our own community mm. in Fakatupanaruumano. You know, they, how do you explain to people like that? Mm. You know, it's so blinkered and closed and you know, they prefer to look at the deprivation stats than to actually see the children or mm. to, you know, to look at a small town that's you know, we have been a, a marginalized and ignored as a Maori town, mm. you know, most of my life. Mm. And in hindsight, it's worked for us. Thank mm. you very much. Because mm. why is it a jewel now in the Greater Wellington uh, Carpety District? Is because mm. we we don't have um, you know terrible urban planning. Mm. You know, um, we've got challenges, mm-hmm. but we deal we mostly deal with them as a community. Um, we recognise that you know the the um, the time of the funeral status in in Otaki, mm. whether you're Māori or not, they might not like it, but it's true. Mm. You know, you have to drive past Roku and Marae, they're mm. Matua Marae. They, you know, you cannot erase 
the visibility of Māori in this town mm. is, is, you cannot erase that. And all of those wahi tapu that we have um, as tohu of our tūpuna's ability to adapt. Mm. You know, Rangiatia mm. Church, um, Puke, you know, Pukekaraka Church, and his, you know, the oldest, um, one of the oldest uh, Catholic missions in the country. You know, why does that exist? Mm. Because it came at a time when there was, you know, the, the Māori um, population was decimated by, you know, um, poverty and disease. Mm. Not because they couldn't look after each other, but because their ability to sustain themselves at the places that, you know, where they the, where they would get the harvests mm. had been, you know, fenced. Mm. And... Um, you know, there was nothing around health healthcare offered to Māori at that time. And it was, you know, so the Catholic Marist brothers of that time, you know, they wanted to work with Māori, not mm. because they wanted their land, <laughs> but because they saw, you know, they saw the potential in, in Māori. And it's not just about, you know, the missionary um, verve or whatever. It's not, you know, and we reflect that back. It's about human to human mm. Relationship and collaboration, and Rangiatia Church is an example of that through your tupuna and our, you know, our tupuna. Um, they adapt and grow, thrive, thrive, mm. thrive, and we constantly get pushed back from that. You mm-hmm. know? I, I do believe that we could, this country, we could thrive, mm. all of us. You know, we could come up together, and there, it's just there's a certain mentality that comes from that that very question of. Mm. Why are there so many gangs in this country? Mm. Because some people cannot thrive mm. out there on their own. And a and gang is whānau, mm. you know? So how do you address gangs? You look at them as whānau. Mm. And then you work it out from there. Because mm. they didn't arrive yesterday. Mm. Some of those gangs are, you know, older than the rugby clubs mm. and the sailing clubs and the elite bowling clubs. and the, You know? They are people coming together who have been marginalised and kicked and kicked and kicked mm. and kicked and you can, and if you deal with them as whānau or work with them as whānau then, you know, they don't want to be you know, not all of those uh, clubs, whether mm. they're gangs or not want to be in the justice system mm. and all the things that, and the reason, you know, it's mm. come on, you know I've re- I liked the, the way you, I mean uh, you, you've kind of linked there really succinctly the just the difference in thought or difference in interpretation of that scene, right? Mm. So, like, where's, like, you mentioned about seeing the potential in all of those, I don't know if you're right, um, mm. but then when that ex-Prime Minister came in, he just saw the, the disadvantage or the, um, mm. the, the looking, lack, you know? Yeah, he looked at it very much through a, a racist, and he wouldn't call himself that. No way. He mm. would, no, he wouldn't think he will. No, I'm not a racist. Would you say the same thing if you'd walked into that room and they were... Pākehā kids sitting there mm. working away. No, oh no, you'd see that as scholarly and mm. um, look at them. Aren't they behaving well? Mm. No, you know that's that is racism. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. you know. And I and I have to call it out because, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in it. You grew up mm. in it. You know, um, and it's it's okay to it's okay to acknowledge that you you know you were ignorant mm. and that led to some racist behaviour. Yeah. But it's not okay to just go on and look. I'm not. I'm mm. not that. You know, turn it around. Make it a 
growth thing. Yeah. <laughs> We've all got bias, right? Yeah, like yeah. Knowing, oh. knowing it is the, yeah. is the key and then not acting on it, you know? Yeah. Um, or giving yourself a second to reconsider it. Yeah, <laughs> Like we've talked about many times already today, you two are a power couple. Um, <laughs> we haven't talked about that, uh, by the way, Etefana. We're just, just kind of coining that that label now. Um, but how has working together uh, helped you both individually in the mahi that you've done uh, yeah, individually. I think there's obviously working together has helped bring Māori land together because mm. uh, two everythings are better than one. Well, mm. that's probably not true, usually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm interested to hear about your own individual endeavours and how having that, um, having this this beautiful uh, pairing has helped that. I think for me, um, I've been able to be myself in the relationship. Because it just so happens that Libby and I, our skills are complementary. There are things that we share, and there are things that um, we may specialise in more, and the other one doesn't. But there's a we know enough between ourselves to be able to do things ourselves. And so, whether the roles are producing, directing, writing, finding the funding, doing the voiceovers, whatever, Libby and I can basically cover all that stuff we don't need anyone else and that's been a blessing because it's kind of grown our our storytelling storytelling abilities ourselves with the short films that we've made together or some of the other creative things but because we kind of grow in that relationship we also do stuff beyond the relationship I have other projects Libby has other projects and that's not even counting Māori land So uh, it's just a lovely mixture of being able to work together and when we have other projects on the outside, we find that we may work on those projects but we turn to the other one for advice, Mm. even though they're not directly involved. Mm -hmm. And so that sounding board facility is always there. And for me, I've known Libby for a long time as a, um, uh, a, uh, a high output person mm-hmm. of a younger generation and quality as well and getting together with her I was able to see one reason for that and that's because she does work from a basis of intuition mm. and that's a loving intuition and as we said earlier the art of the doing mm. so she'll you know she'll um, bring her intuition to life by just doing it mm. I work differently mm. uh, I kind of dwell in my head for a bit and think shit through mm. and then as I say, for the very most part, we're complementary. Mm. Uh, even a simple thing like Libby is better at budget and figures, stuff like that. So she does that. But I'm better at things like um, um, uh, big picture contexts mm-hmm. or language. I always get to send the stuff just because I'm a grammar Nazi and punctuation and stuff like that. So, yeah, we just have complementary skills. Mm. And as colleagues... Our temperaments, we work well together, mm-hmm. you know, whether we're just ourselves or our teams. Mm-hmm. We've had so many teams over the years, and we're kind of viewed as my and part <laughs> sort of thing <laughs> of the teams. Because it's not just the professional, the, you know, the skills that we do, but who we are as people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not unafraid or unaccustomed to karakia and life and death stuff, mm-hmm. family stuff. Um, and so, yeah, we have a... Uh, 
I suppose, a, a personality beyond what we do, but it's all mixed up. Mm. And it just fits. And I'm very happy about that. Mm. Killed it. Yeah, it's... um. <laughs> It's sometimes I wish we'd um, I'd met Tainui I'd met Tainui long, long, long time ago. But I, you know, I wonder sometimes what it would have been like to have not been alone doing a lot of the stuff that mm. I did in my early life, um, where you do you do get kind of smashed about a bit. And I mean, I'm just lucky that he he agreed to come and live down here. Like if he had agreed, oh, if he'd determined that we should go to the beautiful Ahipada what a terrible you know place that is you know no you know like it would have been very hard for us to you know one of us had to give up something Mm. and he gave up for now not forever Mm. but um, his wanting to go home Mm. it's not an ever thing but certainly Māori land wouldn't have happened without Tainui Um, you know because somebody needed to lead from the front in this in in the in terms of you know lead out with our tikanga mm. in a way that you know he does and can which is very much about um, and, you know all those things that he talked about being um, in the race relations office and understanding at a really human level what it is to invite you know people into your fuddy mm. you know and I mean if anything you know, being the peacemaker, and you didn't explain that Te Rarawa is known as the peacemakers mm. too, mm. of, you know, the North. Mm. Um, very much part of his DNA, mm-hmm. and I guess part of my DNA is not to, you know, to not to take a defeat as a defeat, but strategize around, you know, and look look for the, stra- you know, to always be strategizing. Mm. If they're going to do this, how do we stay ahead of this? How do we get around that? Mm. How do we not, and never, I mean, I won't come. We won't compromise, you know, mm. on what those um, tikanga that, that our fuddy well, we stand for, and it's that's, and that makes it clear. And those were set by Tainui, you know, the four po of our fuddy. So there's things that Tainui um, does that I know. It feels like we've we, like you said, I mean, there's no argument there about any. Of it. I think. You know, I'll fight for him and against. I'll <laughs> rail against the world that I think that Tainui is. You know, um, because he's a senior producer and because he's making brave, um, you know, films and series um, that invoke, you know, jealousies and criticisms. Mm. You know, here we are in Ōtaki and I'm railing against all those assholes. You know, mm. in Auckland. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but this is another beauty of living here. Yep. Like, we don't know what's going on, mm, really. Mm, we're not in the we're we're in a bubble, but we're not in that bubble. Yep. And that bubble can be toxic, mm. you know. And it's true. So it's lovely, you know. So he so most of the time I'm railing to protect him, and he's the only person in the room hearing it. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but it's still important, right? Yeah, it's important. It's, there you go, darling. Yeah. You know, and um, I don't know these things like that or. You know, last week was a classic week where we had really huge applications that, you know, one of them alone is weeks, years of experience to try and, you know, condense it down mm. to them. And we had four of them. Mm. And it was quite amazing. You know, Maddie literally glued to my side on her computer. I'm on my computer. Tainui's, we're at the hub, and Māori and hub, and Tainui's back here, you know. And we're all 
without really having to discuss it, just you know, working out mm. parts of it and creating these four applications that just almost create themselves because of them. We've done it so many times before. We, we know, know each other. Done. We know yeah. what that person's going to say. We know that that you know. There's just a real synergy around everything. Um, sometimes though, Peter, it gets really like we don't take our like I said earlier, we don't take our storytelling heads off mm. ever because mm-hmm. this is like it's a 24 hour seven mm. day a week uh, um, life we're living so you know there are times when I just go oh, just sometimes I wish we could just you know go away and not think yeah like yep. not yep. engage in any of it yet when a day turns up when she can do nothing not even yep <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's busy, you know, and life is busy. Life is supposed to be, well, I think you shouldn't waste any time you've mm. got when you're on the planet mm-hmm. and do everything. Killed it. Mm. <laughs> um, and I just want to, yeah, just uh, shout out as well. Like, it is, it's as someone seeing uh, you both from mm. the outside, it is, it is beautiful seeing the way that you are so uh, public about your love and, and, mm. and seeing how you operate as a couple is, is mm. quite cool and quite inspiring, especially as a, as a, a Māori man. Like, that's... Um, not necessarily something that we see heaps of all the time. Mm. Like I know I've got a couple of other um, couple of other people I look up to or who I see mm. being that visible in their um, mm. in the aroha, and it's it's equally inspiring from them. Like it's just something to mm. to be um, yeah grateful for. Mm. So killed it for that. Sure. Um, so what would what would Maori Land look like if it was just one of you and you were you weren't uh, in this. Um, this relationship and you weren't doing it as a as a pair would it would it exist uh, from my point of view I don't think it would have no mm-hmm. I don't I just no I wouldn't you know all the like a, you know it feels nice to be at seven years and we've got we've got a not a structure but we've, we've got a we've got a structure we've got better than that yeah, well, yeah we've got a way of doing things mm. and it all mm. meshes together and it comes from experience and pain mm. you know they were like oh this is classic this first year was it the second year it was the second year 2015 we got to the end of the second year and we weren't talking I mean we were talking but Pat and Tans myself Maddie we were all we were almost like we were burnt out and so we took ourselves over to the to carpet yeah and we had this kind of debrief and it, well, I'll never forget that because your dad starts because right <laughs> Okay, so we're doing this debrief thing. Who wants to start food? Or, I can't remember how it started, but he was there. Yeah. And none of us wanted to talk to each other. Like, well, you know, we were talking to each other. There was civility, and, but yeah, there yeah. was a lot of hurt. Yeah. Not because we'd gone out of our, our way to hurt each other, but because in all that busyness and all that stress, mm. we'd forgotten to look after each other mm-hmm. and to, you know, to, mm. to actually communicate with each other. And we had this, like, yeah, really long conversation about... And it wasn't like, you did this and you mm. did that. It was just about our own personal bruises and hurts and how we felt let down. It wasn't like, and because you did that, mm. I mean, it wasn't that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, and we were able to then, you know, to then move into a different space and a different kind of way of doing things as a farmer. Mm. But um, I just think that I wouldn't have wanted to to work so hard without you know like Tainui's got my back and mm. he's in my corner doesn't mean that he's against it's not like I'm a, you know I'm lucky because you know the whole team functions because every person every po of the whare has contributes mm. in their way and, and and in the way they want to and if I don't think if my honey was there and I was 
somehow, yeah, it just, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> no, it wouldn't have happened because you know, we wouldn't have made the film which kind of kicked things off at first, which talked about community participation and telling mm. our own stories. And then it was the showing of those stories that led to the notion of exhibiting via a festival or whatever. And I've kind of, so I've kind of realised that, um, and it's both exciting and depressing, that actually um, the most important change doesn't come from any system, doesn't come from any structure. It comes from an individual who happens to be the sort of person he or she is at a certain place and time mm. with a certain opportunity. Mm. And that's it, mm. really. And um, we had our opportunity or have our opportunity. Or I can think of any number of people and any number of systems mm. who have done good things. Mm. Not because of the system, but because they're good people. Mm. Mm. Because they found a way through a system or because they could um, go against a system, mm. perhaps. So, you know, these things don't happen because a system mm. makes them happen or encourages them to happen. They happen because people development, mm. as we express with our tikanga, as we express with our whānau development, as we express with the wishes we have for our young people, and as we express, as we exemplify aroha, mm. give it to them and hope they'll carry it on with it. So, yeah, I think that... Um, Something else would have happened. It's not like... The impulse yeah. for mm. there to be yeah. an indigenous storytelling thing, absolutely, the, those things are unstoppable. Mm. Um, there was always going to be, in due course, tribal radio or a Māori TV mm. or a Māori political voice. Some stuff is inevitable. Mm. The shape they take um, is critical because some things have not survived. Mm. Māori television didn't survive first time round. It survived second time round, but just... They've got problems at the moment too, which also speaks to our need, and it's part of our adapt-or-die kind of whakaaro. Um, we've got to look to the future and be unafraid of change mm. and be prepared to change. Our tikanga are a barometer to our humanity, and we can look to those with safety if we enshrine them in whatever changes that are on the way. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, Māori land is or isn't what it is for reasons of circumstance as much as um, where we happen to be in history as mm. people developing. Happens to be down here. I mean, yeah, it's just kind of worked out like that. You can't plan for it beyond, in my view, uh, people development, mm. not systems. Mm-hmm. Killed it. And so does that kind of... Um, so the next question I was going to ask was the um, not just the Māori land mahi, but your your journeys and your getting to the point of doing the mahi that you love mm. um, and, and, your, and your careers. Um, I feel like you've kind of you've kind of answered that in a way, Tainui, with that, um, that mm. kōrero around, mm. um, yeah, those places and those opportunities and um, I guess being... Uh, being prepared to develop into those opportunities as well as I guess having need needing to have done the pre-development probably to get to the point of being able to take that opportunity at the time mm-hmm. um, bottom line though is being unafraid to be who you are mm. and accepting help along the way mm-hmm. being grateful for that help and passing it on when the time comes for you to help someone else mm. um, Libby and I have both been mentored by some terrific people and we've both mentored in our time. So you get these gifts, 
and you've got to pass them on. Mm. There's no sure. point being selfish about it. And I think, you know, I'm very aware that I am a spectacularly successful person because I've loved my job, mm. I've loved the things I've done, the lives I've lived, the contribution I've been able to make, mm-hmm. and the things I enjoy. Um, that's just my story. Mm. And there's so many other stories that people have. Everyone's stories are different, but the basis of it, I mean, I don't know, sometimes the talk of happiness is overblown. Mm. I'm not sure if it's happiness as much as contentment. Mm. And um, and being a, and I think when you live tikanga and you, you know, tangy things or life things, and life is good and bad and it's got ups and downs, mm. the most important thing is love mm. and, and all those basic things. So I think I'm just, as I get older, more impressed by the simplicities and the profound importance of mm. the simple stuff. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Uh, get into a couple of quick, easy ones. Uh, a puka puka you would gift a friend if you could only give one book? Oh, yes. I was saying to you before, Pedro, I mean, I, <laughs> I read books and then I f- promptly forget them, which is not how it always was. Um, but I have read a book recently that I really enjoyed, and it's kind of like, I think straight off that, and this is not a disclaimer to this book, but um, why I liked it was because it's it's a man writing to, he's just been, he's just discovered a... Um, a prognosis or a diagnosis um, that looks like he has a um, incurable disease mm-hmm. when he's given this um, diagnosis, and it's a factual book. So he writes himself, he takes himself off to Venice, and he writes himself um, twenty letters over twenty nights. And I found it really profound because he he talks about like um, what is the point of his existence mm. and what is the point of many existences and because he's in one of the um, one of my favourite places on the planet um, but he's also amongst you know this culture and this history of of that part of the world you know and further and further and all the trading routes and he's sort of you know he's unpacking and picking you know many many centuries of uh, history mm. in his thinking um and he meets different people along the way who, you know, so goes off on these kind of tangents with these these people. And he, what he's opening himself up to and how he writes it is he's opening himself up to chance and destiny and looking at tohu. And so even though he's a Pākehā Australian man writing about this, he writes in such a way that it, it it's about the multiverse and the, mm. you know, the human existence and all these really big questions. And it's just his, 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 his writing I found to be really profound. Um, and it's solitude and loneliness and facing, you know, the impending um, end of days. And there's some really wonderful stuff all set in this inc- in these incredible places of mm. old Europe. And you know, kind of asks you questions of, you know, what our forebears thought mm. you know, when they looked up and or faced their um, humanity or the, you know, end of days. So that's called. Um, <laughs> wait a minute, it's coming. <laughs> the Night Letters by Patrick Desay. 
did you say he was a journal? He he's still alive, by the way. He's a journalist, and he's and it's he was writing on. I think it's about eight years old. This book, so I really enjoyed that because I think it just you know like Tony mentioned, it sort of. I'm kind of at a point where I'm going, what is the point of any of it? Mm. You know, like we're not the first people. We always think we're the first people doing stuff. Mm. We're not, and if we were aware, that's why I like to think when I look over to Carpedia and I think about, you know, our connection. Uh, there as a people and you know and I look n- north and I think you know what it must have been like to come down on the Hekin, Hekina mm. uh, you know we just have to go and find you know we have to go and look at our stories mm. you know back in time to really understand where we are right now mm. and none of it's you know we've been asking the same questions of our existence mm. since we were asking the questions of our existence mm. so Mm, I found mm. that really interesting. And it's, um, yeah, Kilda. And then we'll put the, um, I'll put a link to that book in the, mm. in the mm. notes for the episode as well. Um, and it's interesting to then go, like I do exactly the same thing mm. when, when I'm on carpet and I look at the, the, the rocks in the bay and I, you know, you imagine the waka pulling up yeah, and then, so. um, you look up at the, at the hill and you know, the, the, mm. the kumara put up there and the, um, mm. observing, you know, and looking down from there. Mm. And then you go like, you know, 10,000 years before that mm. as well, you know, mm. before we were here, like mm. what, what was going on there? Yeah. And, and this, mm. and this hill was still mm. there then mm. and, um, mm. And it'll still be here, hopefully, in mm. ten thousand years. Mm. Um, you know that whole uh, meditating on your uh, mortality thing, mm. and and I guess the other half of it is meditating on the permanence of mm. everything else. You know, mm. like uh, we're we're a very mm. very little speck on the oh, on the time. Ti- on the timeline. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. But like you say, that we we don't think like that, right? We mm. Mm. by necessity think of our our existence as the existence the and greatness uh, of yeah, what we're this doing. This is what this is all. This is what this is the middle of it. This is the center of the universe. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Like that's, yeah well, uh, that's true as well. So you know. <laughs> I mean, it's the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, such an important. Um, mm. I think f- from a well-being perspective as well, right? Like, it's a pretty important thing to mm. to remember. Um, mm. It just puts all of those let, let, lets you put all of those other things in perspective. You know, the yeah. the, mm. the tangi and the, all of the, yeah. the the pain and the the negative mm. things that happen, like yeah. in, the, in the scheme of the universe that I'm a part of. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, mm, okay. it's the universe thing, I think, which is my book. Although. I, I reread um, Tale of Two Cities recently, and I'm just blown away by Dickens. A, because of his commercial smarts. You know, he used to write these mm. things as uh, magazine editions, and so people would be hanging out for the next week's thing. He was a master storyteller, and his use of language is unbelievable. His drama and his characters are astonishing, and all my life, if I've wanted to be a boost, I'll go and read the last page of Tale of Two Cities. You know, mm. It's a far, far better thing than I've ever done. That kind of thing. And just what English language can do in the hands of a master it hit me young and mm. it still hits me now. But I found over the years I've gravitated more towards um, uh, non-fiction. So many bios. I mean, the Tangata Whenua book by, with Aroha Harris and others that was released recently. There's some terrific historical stuff um, that New Zealand is making now or I'm never happier than I'm in a tome de- de- dedicated to the Congress of Vienna or the Nuremberg Trials I love all of that stuff but over Christmas I try and rest my mind mm. and get into fiction and the fiction that does it most for me is Ian Banks 
um, kind of science fiction. Years ago, I was given one of his um, culture novels called Consider Phlebas. And I've got about all 13 or 14 of them now. And the culture novels are basically set it's way out in space. Um, the culture is a kind of um, an entity that controls vast areas of space and that the books are all about these worlds and they are staggering works of the imagination mm-hmm. in terms of the fighting, the characters, the the types of torture, the types of battle, the types of intricacies that go on in any kind of relationship but as a work of imagination mm-hmm. in a future, mm-hmm. way out there, somewhere blows my mind and um, yeah so Ian M. Banks and the culture novels they take you into another zone vastly entertaining and delicious use of language I love good language mm. with whatever language it is mm. speak Russian baby yes <laughs> <laughs> kia ora alright well those uh, those will go on the reading list um yeah and those are, that's probably all of the all of the part-time that I have is there anything that any other corridor that you would like to bestow on our kaifakarongo? There's one thing that I came across recently. It was an interview with a co-master called Anaru Kuping up in Ngati Poro, and so I've put it in a docker that I've finished recently. And he just talks about aroha, and it's in Māori. And he just talks about how kids, when they see someone from whom they can feel aroha mm. they will go and swarm that person mm. as much as if they come across or sense someone who doesn't have that aroha they'll stay away mm. and I, the way Anadu spoke about it said big things to me about relationships mm. you know, abuse at one extreme love at the other mm. and the centrality of aroha in terms of, and it doesn't exist in a way unless there's someone else for it, or mm. something else mm. for it to be shared with. Again, it's just going back to the basics, and um, I'm just kind of interested in that. Mm. Kilda. I flock to you, my baby. Mm. <laughs> Choice. I don't think you, I had anything to nah, say. Cool. I, was, I, was, I was just riffy, I was just like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a choice of cuddle. It's, um, yeah, it is a choice. And I immediately actually thought of uh, of Dad, you know, where who has just taken Huhana out to the netball, and um, you know, his his mukupuna flock to him and Mum. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though he can be grumpy, even, even, even though, though he can, can be, feel it, he, he pretends to be grumpy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but that whole thing, and it, and it's the same for every I don't know all of my mates who have uh, who have kids mm. have the same thing of like, mm. where was that guy when I was. Where, where was that dad or, or granddad yeah. when I was growing yeah. up? You know, and I mean, yeah. uh, the, the and it's it's obviously um, as simple as like a, a, a mum and dad's love is very different to a a, mm. a grandparents or a um, mm. or yeah. a grandmother's love. Like it's yeah. a, you have a an entire an entirely different relationship and a, and, a, and almost a quite privileged relationship as a grandparent because um, yeah. yeah. you know you can yeah. just do the yeah. wow here's yeah. a weekend of aroha you know yeah. and I don't have to deal with. You know all of the things that you haven't done that I told you to do, yeah. um, but it, but it's just very cool to see and, mm. and to see them flock to him and, and to her. Mm. Um, yeah, 
I think actually I might just make one comment in that is because we, you know, it informs everything. I, I, it has informed my whole life. I spoke really earlier about why it had to, I had to come home. Um, so yeah, it was a, about reconnecting, but I was never not connected. That was the thing because the love, the aroha that I've always known in Otaki from my aunties, and especially Auntie Borgia, but other aunties, Auntie Molly. Uh, all of those aunties, of which you know they all came off the same um, picker, the same tree, the same branch of the tree. Um, so when I looked to my dad, who's one of the only surviving um, of that uh, whānau in terms of the direct uh, relationship, you know, he grew up in a house. We grew up on stories of dad growing up in a house called Hacker's Castle um, in Ōtaki, which was a big old homestead. And I've seen photos of that house. The way Dad describes it, it was a castle. Mm. It was a castle. When you see the photos and you actually de- you know, hear a little bit more from his siblings and then his aunties that grew up with him, uncles and aunties that grew up with him, the house was very run down, mm. um, had a lot of people sleeping, you know, four or five to a room, they didn't have. Um, it was there was no sarking on the on the walls on the wooden native timber walls. They had newspapers. Mm. So as a consequence, they all are really good spellers and use very long <laughs> words because that's how they would go to sleep at night. Yep. You know, talk. You know, but Dad grew up in a in a very large family of uncles and aunties of I think eighteen of them. Wow. Know? So he talks about the bustle of the house, the mm. home, but always, 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 always a sense of being loved mm. and seen and and um, the whole community looking after each other. Mm. Um, and for me, I got that as a young child coming from the hut where we were living at the time up to Otaki nearly every weekend. I mean, Dad would drop everything and just drive to, you know. Um, so that nu- sense of being loved and nurtured is really, really strong mm. here in Otaki. And, um, yeah, so I think as the antidote for all of this other bullshit that's going on, mm. you just have to, it's aroha, mm. you know, back to the, you know, the direction of where the, the heart breathes. We go back mm. there, you know, we go back there. I think everybody does. So, yeah, I just, um, I'm here to those aunties <coughs> of, in my whakapapa, in those queer, my queer all the way back, who who have exhibited extraordinary strengths to hold as many of the whānau together as I can. And I think I see that in my cousins, mm. in my female cousins along the line. I see them all doing that in mm-hmm. some way. And I think that's, you know, yeah, strong. It's not just saying strong or wahini tō, strong woman. It's actually about you know the capacity to 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 uh, you know have unconditional love, and I think that's something that's really hard to do. <coughs> and yet, it's the it's the thing that is the legacy builder. Mm. It is the thing. It is the thing. To unconditionally love everybody around yep. you, no matter what. You know, so it's not about creating big temples or. So, wouldn't mind winning an Oscar <laughs> just for the hell of it. <laughs> But, you know, it's actually but, bigger than that. Yeah, mm. and, like, just to, to go back to that quarter rule that we had a while ago about the, um, you know, how are you going to stop these um, kids, getting, kids into getting into gangs? Um, like, I, one of the 
one of our other kōrero was with a, um, was with one one of my mates who um, has been in and out of gangs his whole life, and um, and he talked about when I asked, asked him the question like why you know why have you why has mm. that been true for you, and um, and his answer was that like when you don't feel the love that you think you should feel yeah. uh, at home mm. yeah. uh, or from your yeah. whanau, you go out and you find it somewhere else. And for yeah. him, it, this was that Absolutely. was in gangs. Yeah. Um, and so that's, mm. that, you know, like, mm. it doesn't just solve the, the those macro mm. things and, and the trumps of the world and, and be mm. the, the, the positive to that negative. Mm. Like, it also... It stops mm. our whānau from going and joining the mangis or going mm. and putting a patch on somewhere else. Like mm. that's, um, mm. yeah, it's mm. uh, obviously simple, simple sounds simplistic thing yeah. of, of you know mm. just aroha. But um, yeah, I think if if you can be that post that your mm. own children or your brothers or your sisters flock mm. to because mm. you give that aroha. Mm. Um, yeah, not only do you keep those whānau together, like you, you might be stopping those whānau from joining other whānau that you don't want them to join. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, kia ora. That's, mm. I think that's a, a cool note to end on and a cool reminder to give our uh, kai whakarumo. Just love, man. Yeah. Do the love. <laughs> Go on, dears. <laughs> Peter, again, one last thing before you go. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast player so that you can hear about the new episodes as we release them. Uh, and if you know anybody else that you think might enjoy the kōrero, uh, please leave a review either in iTunes or your podcast player uh, to let others know what the podcast's about, what the kōrero is about, uh, and that it's worth their time listening to. Kia ora.